spits, um, or sorry, you throw it into a statistical uh, analysis, and out spits um, some data for you to look at. And generally, what's happening is you're able to um, correlate species with the kinds of conditions that they live in. So, for example, today, if there's a species A that lives in the lake and it really likes warm conditions, and then there's species B, it really likes the cold conditions. So you can look through this whole profile and you can, you can, uh, sort of get a profile. So you get a profile, you get to see what's going on and you're looking at the historical, um, uh, so it's sort of like telling a story of these. That's right. Tell a story. Oh, wow. Maybe global climate change happened here. Or sorry, maybe some climate change was happening here because, um, species B was dominating. It was, it's the cold water species. It really likes cold water. Didn't see A here very much at all. So you can get this history. And what was really important about this particular approach, um, is that, um, we were using it to validate climate change models. Hmm. So the better that you can hindcast, in other words, so you can look at historical data and if and if you can hindcast it, that means, you know, you can take the, these algal um, assemblages and you're correlating it to these conditions. And say, hmm, this happened thousand years ago. That's right. And so the better you can hindcast, because you've got this data set, the better you can forecast. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so the more data that you have supporting your, your the model, mm -hmm. yeah. So this was really important for climate change and it was also really important for acid rain. Back in the 70s. Right. So how did you get from all this super interest, like super intense work with the water and all these nanoorganisms and stuff to what what I like to know you as because your handle on Twitter and Instagram is Gypsy uh, Queen Gypsy B. I think I got that right. Gypsy B. Gypsy B. Um, to uh, Gypsy B. Uh, to bees. How did you get from one to the other? Right. Well, yeah. I'm sorry. I did really drag that explanation out, didn't I? It's all right. I like the explanation. <laughs> um, well, there was there were various jobs and uh, children involved in my life, mm -hmm. and then I ended up um, writing a review article for Bob Wildpong, who happens to be the executive director of Seeds of Diversity Canada, and he lives here in Waterloo. And I wrote a review article for him. He really liked it. And it was on um, a very special kind of uh, technology. <coughs> and so then he um, happened to receive a grant which was able to employ me for eventually. We stretched it out with other grants for seven years. So I was oh, able wow. to be the pollination outreach coordinator for Seeds of Diversity Canada. And Seeds of Diversity Canada spun off the Canadian Organic Growers over three Ago, and it's a national um, non-profit charitable organization that's dedicated to the conservation of agricultural and horticultural biodiversity to create resilient and sustainable agricultural systems. So biodiversity, just for your listeners there, they yeah. might not be totally familiar. It's right um, over my head too. So. Okay, perfect. So it's really a compound word. It means biological diversity. And right. It honestly just refers to the amazing diversity of plants and animals that we have here on the planet. Right. 
would that so do you focus on all animals in that biosphere or would you focus predominantly on you know the water species or bees or what would you focus on when you were studying it? Uh, when I was with Seeds of Diversity, yes, yes, I was I was focused on the biodiversity of pollinators, which are animals that pollinate. Okay, so is that just bees, or is that are bees the only ones that pollinate? Great question. Um, no, they aren't. So, um, so what happens here is maybe we should just back up a teeny weeny easy bit. All right. Yes, let's back up. We start with what in the world is pollination. Yeah, okay. Okay. So pollination is a vital first step in plant reproduction. Basically okay. what we're talking yeah. about is plant sex here. Okay. Ooh, yeah. Naughty. I know. <laughs> Crazy. Um so as you might know, plants happen to have male and female organs that are located within the plant's flowers. Okay. Okay, so Something called pollen. Have you ever taken a dandelion and rubbed it on your face or somebody else's face? <laughs> yep. And you're left with this yellow powdery residue? Yeah, I have two younger brothers. I've done that to them before. <laughs> They've done that to me before. Okay. <laughs> so that is pollen. That residue, that yep. powder, is pollen. And it's the male genetic material of plants. Pollen needs to get to the female part of the flower. Right. That is exactly what pollination is. All about getting that pollen to where it needs to go, and so it's that transfer of pollen. How does that happen? So there are ways, there are physical ways. Wind and water are mm -hmm. two natural physical ways that plants will do this. So, for example, um, what we call um, staple cereal crops, such as barley, rice, oats, wheat, corn, and rye. These are all types of plants that only need the wind to accomplish pollination. So. When pollinated plants make pollen that is really light in weight and small in size so that it carries easily through the air and the plant produces a lot of it, but much of the pollen produces waste as it tries to reach its destination. So the other important thing about this wind pollination system is that pollen from plants that rely on winds are the ones to blame for allergies, not goldenrod. So it's not goldenrod's fault. I get sniffles once in a while. That the goldenrod usually in the <coughs> late summer and autumn. What happens here? We're talking about trees, shrubs, vines, ground cover, um, native grasses, um, wildflowers. That's all. Anything that would grow naturally. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so we have. So those are monocultures. Those are called monoculture units. You're growing a lot, which is the same thing. And in particular, corn, if you'll remember, is one of those wind pollinators. Right. It doesn't provide nectar. So the bees can't feed off the corn, so it's sort of just... They they will starve if corn is their only source of food. Because mm. it only... 
grows for a certain time of the season, and, and the pollen isn't quite as nutritious yeah. as pollen that's meant for pollinators. So, what what would be some good plants for pollinators and farmers to grow? Well, um, I can get into that part a little later. All right, yeah. a little later. All right. Perfect. Sorry, I'm, it's okay. I'm long-winded. It's all right. I like that. I like that you're long-winded. This is good. Okay. So we've got to stay back to. Uh, you were asking about so honeybees going extinct, right? Yes. Okay. Let's get back to that. Circle. Okay. Yeah. Corn. Bad for bees. That's right. Pollen. So we're just going. We're going. What What we're doing right now is delving into all the reasons that all bees are on the decline. Yes. And so habitat is one of those things. Then we also have chemical use. So we're talking pesticides. Yeah. Or insecticides. Um, bees happen to be insects. Insecticides eat insects. So so that's having an effect. Um, there are also pests and disease. We've got climatic shifts going on due to global climate change. So for example, the time of emergence for a pollinator from hibernation and the time that its native plants will bloom for food are orchestrated to coincide, but researchers are starting to see some timing differences here. And another factor that is affecting the populations, um, beetles and such, um, are invasive species. So I'm referring to both plants, which I call flora, and animals, which I call fauna. So, um, for example, non-native bees can displace native populations of bees, and we see that happen in Patagonia, where you can watch Yeah, so those are, those are the reasons why they're on decline. Um, yeah, so so that that applies to both honeybees and other bees. Now, the media um, so yeah, the media has has sort of misunderstood these particular nuances that I'm about to explain. Honeybees uh, really suffered losses. So what, what, what beekeepers do yeah. in um, every year is they will look at how many bees died over the winter. And so they report that as their, their winter die-off. And in Canada, for many, many years, it's on average, it's about 15% of your bees will die due to just natural causes and Weather, a little bit, yeah. They, 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 they have strategies for working with that. So not a huge amount, but still, you know. Yeah, like, I mean, it's going to be something. Yeah, but yeah. 15% is not a huge loss. That's right. But headlines started appearing when bees were dying 60%, 50%, and it was because of winter illness and infections. So it was quite dramatic. Yeah. So, um. So that's alarming for them, and it will affect their livelihood and any any winter destruction that is occurring in the forest. So um, this is an agricultural this is due to the agricultural practices. So what we actually saw happening with honeybees Get planted with the pesticide. Uh, 
just kill the best things to be regardless of what it might be. That's great. Okay. But there's a lot of dust that was kicked up by this explosion. And uh, like we say, there were four places where the dust was bouncing on the soil and it stayed there for a very, very long time. This is having, this is, this is why you're staying here. So it's not the honeybees that are going extinct. They're fine. It's the bumblebees that are going extinct. Bumblebees and other bees will make their way out of this because there's the entrance to the Um, Honeybees came to Canada about 400 years ago with pollen. They were going to reduce the amount of pollen in the air. And it does not work. Some do, some just annoy me. Some make honey, most make honey, yeah. Okay. And some just buzz around sting me.
Mostly, they're the most na- most native bees in Canada living underground. Or yeah, they're living in underground, or they're living in cavities and okay. skeletons. Oh. And some smolders and everything. So you're talking like Kingsbury, Kingston, so Elderberry, and so on. Like these big, really interesting hiding cavities in their bees and bees. So. That's only one on the endangered species list. The other, what about the other six? Yeah, the other six have been they're they're recommended and uh, they've been recommended to more protection, but they await information about them. Okay, so six are still iffy, but there's one that's actually yeah, on. Yeah, one okay. that's, that's actually on, like one that is protected. It has measures in place. The other six are waiting. They've been 
designate them and identify them to the world. So, um, so yeah, so those are the species that we really need to be concerned about. And maybe your listeners are wondering, well, what can we do? What can we do? Well, we can do a lot of things, but honestly, it's really the absolute best thing that we can do is be independent. And what can we plan? Well, all right, well, let's get into that. Just to back up a teeny bitty bit, there are three basic needs that need to be met. Okay. And that's the great thing, by the way, bees are engaging. <laughs> so to me, don't do drugs, do delivery bugs. That's right. These bees and, you know, like the bee issue yeah. is a great foot in the door for all ecosystems. So once you're protecting some habitat or creating habitat for bees, you know, it, it expands to other creatures. It, it's right. an interconnected web of life, right? Everything is... My brain just went to the Circle of Life song from... Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay, perfect. Perfect. Um, yeah, so so it helps a lot. Anyway, three basic needs to help bees. You want to provide them with adequate food, which means pollen and nectar. And you want to give them safe nest sites. And you want to protect them from pesticides. <coughs> okay. So, and by the way, you know, I know I'm talking fast and a lot... If any of our listeners out there are wanting to look this information on their own and maybe at home and make sure they pace, I would like to recommend a, a website that they can go to. Recommend away? Okay. So seeds.ca, so S as in? Uh, Sierra. Sierra, right. We spoke in that alphabet. Yeah, let's see that. So Sierra, Echo, Echo, uh, Roger. D. No, no, no. On a D. Seeds? Seeds. Sierra, Echo, Echo, uh, Delta, Sierra. Perfect. So seeds.ca. Correct. Slash pollination slash resources. I'm not going to spell out those last. Either, but <laughs> no. <laughs> so that's Sierra, Echo, Echo, Delta, Sierra, dot, C-A? Yes. All right. Beautiful. That's perfect. Yeah, so there are um, all the resources, any resources that I mentioned will be so, if we want to keep in mind that adequate food means pollen and nectar from flowers, ideally what you want to do is select a mix of pollen and nectar providing plants and herbivores during the entire growing season. And not just during the summer when so many people have things growing. Right. You want to think about those shoulder seasons like early spring right now and late autumn. Right, okay. when there might not be so many As much. Growing. When people okay. don't really think about it, you know. Yeah. And, and you can think of... Um, we really try to encourage you to think about perennial native plants at all canopy levels. So, I mean, obviously, if your listeners are students, they're not going to be going out there and growing fruit and nut-bearing trees and shrubs and wildflowers and herbs and native grasses and brown combined, but, but they could think about, and here's something for your Laurier students, um, you know, something that's fun to consider are how about some blooms in your school colors? That does sound fun. Yeah. So as far as purple flowers go, asters. Asters are awesome. So native asters, you see them growing all the time, usually in conjunction, actually, with goldenrod. And there's your gold, right? Right. So, I mean, even if you just grew or allowed or encouraged to grow um, a 
asters and goldenrod. Asters and goldenrod. Boom! You've got two, those are two autumn plants there. Already since union. Yeah. <laughs> I know at least one of you listens to this, Zamar. Come on! <laughs> I had him on a couple weeks ago. Oh, nice. I know he listens to this, so we can bug him about that. That's excellent. We have an expert here. She endorses this. Let's get it done. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, so there's things like giant blue hyssop. Uh, even though it says it's blue, it looks purple to me. There's ironweed. There's burbank. There's wild geranium. Wild blue phlox. So those are all like on the purple side of things. And right. There are more too. These are some main ones that people see that come to mind. Uh, that I made note of. Um, and some yellow ones are coreopsis. Gray-headed cauliflower. It's a great uh, native flower. It actually has yellow petals. Oh, okay. I was going to say gray-headed cauliflower. I know. Mm. It doesn't sound quite right. But think about a purple uh, flower. Yeah. Um, look, you know, echinacea, you know, the plant that's supposed to help you with your cold. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something so that just, I need right now. Oh, yeah. There you go. So um, just replace, yeah, so instead of it being purple, it would be Listeners or students, maybe they can, <coughs> they can take this information home to their parents too. And if they were to take these, this information home to their parents, and say their parents have, you know, somewhere that they can grow maybe trees or vines or yes. whatever, what could they grow? Yeah, okay. Well, one of, one of the, the main points I really want to emphasize here are native plants. Native plants. Why? So, I think some non-native plants look very nice. They do. And and, and I don't want to shame anybody or um, down discourage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We all have our but I'm what I'm what I'm telling you are best practices. Right. So I'm just gonna let I'm gonna give you the facts and you get to make up your own mind. So um, one of the things about native plants is that they've they've grown up or they've co-evolved with our local pollinators. And what that means means that these Native plants are supporting the needs of our local pollinators like wildlife and other pollinators. Yeah, and so native plants have adapted to our growing conditions, and this is so important with respect to climate change. Right. So, for example, uh, our kinds of our native plants are going to be able to evolve and adapt much better than an ornamental or exotic plant would. Right. Yeah. So the other great thing about native plants is that they little if no water whatsoever. Because they already know the climate that they need to grow up in, so they're like, oh, okay, I know I can get this much water from X, Y, and Z. That is absolutely correct, yeah. And so, and, and often these native plants are drought tolerant. I want to talk about some tall grass species in a minute, but before I do, I just want to mention that, for example, again, this, these are just best practices, so some ornamentals or hybrid plants will offer nectar Have to keep that in mind. So things yeah. like double-bloomed roses, for example, so double-flowered plants, if you see, if you see these, they have little wildlife value because the bees and other insects can't access the nectar. Okay, so they have, and it's just the bees can't really 
than two weeks. Yeah. So what we um, what we find, okay, so for example, by the way, there are many, many lists on that website at rapidlyscene.ca slash pollination slash resources. You got it. Yes, we love that. Yeah. So um, there are many plant lists there. I would I do refer you to. And also, something that's really great is that this organization called the Healthy Information Kit has provided, um, developed some eco-regionally uh, appropriate plant lists. Cool. So, for example, here in Waterford, I'm from Kenya. We are in the Manitoulin Lake Simcoe. Those would be ones that aren't just loaded to Ontario, but are native to Waterloo, and you would they would have been growing for Waterloo, and those would be different to Cambridge, to Toronto, to Ottawa. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, Ottawa would be in a different ecoregion. I think Cambridge is in the same ecoregion. Yeah. Um, but what's really interesting about Cambridge is that um, it's on. Just one half does the other. <laughs> is that. Um, this ecoregion does include some very small samples of what's called Carolinian Prairie Spruce, which is remnants of tall grass trees. So tall grass prairie and tall grass cedars are known as endangered ecological trees in North America. And many of these native assemblages tolerate a wide range of temperatures and they are drought tolerant. So what's really interesting is that up to 65% of those plants' biomass, so most of their physical, actual plant is located underground in these extensive root systems, allowing some of these plants, according to tall grass materials in SK, to seek carbon at the same rate as wood. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so this, we need this tall grass, essentially. We need these species. So when I, when I say tall grass, you might be meaning actually grass, yes. There are five particular native tall grass species, Correct. but there are also a lot of Yes. For Laurier. Yeah, some of those. They are. Now, just for your listeners' uh, yeah. entertainment, um, for the listeners themselves, or if they want to take this information and do their own research, mm-hmm. one of the things I would recommend see, the thing is, when it comes to native wild, wildlife gardening, you really want to. So, you know, you want to leave your dead fall. Um, you really don't want to clean up your garden and then spray in the plants in the um, fall. In the fall, that's right. Because you inadvertently you could be putting pollinators at your curbside, if you're, especially cleaning up your raspberry stems. You could be cutting down maybe your pollinators. So you made your stems really Business in the front and party, party in the back. back. 
then maybe you want to allocate your pollinator paradise to your backyard. Correct. And that's where you can get all fluffy and crazy and just. And then keep this nice and tidy stuff in the front. Yeah. Okay. Although, probably not just because it's grass is Nutrients and pollen. That's and stuff. right. So I, I just wanted to say something though about Laurier itself. Shoot. If you don't mind. Go right ahead. Um, you know, you've got a really great university here that's really committed to the project. And um, last year, last year we noticed that Laurier's sustainability office was uh, fundraising. They're trying to fundraise to, they, they actually had a little apiary. They have a little tulip. I think I saw that. Yep. Yeah, on campus. Now, it's actually at their Northfield campus. I think I saw something about that just because it's even with that towards Laurier stuff. So I think I probably saw something about it on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. So, um, yeah, so they were fundraising to add these honeybees. And, um, mm -hmm. well, one of the main things that I didn't really mention to you, and I didn't get around to talking about honeybees because there's so much to talk about. There is. Um, is that a honeybee hive? How many individual bees do you think it is? I think you told me this. <laughs> I originally said a uh, hundred, but sorry, eight hundred. But I think you said something closer to. I want to say three hundred thousand or something around there. Okay. Well, well, we're gonna narrow it down. Okay. We're gonna hit it. So, um, in the off season, so right about now, you probably got about twenty. So essentially, you've got the population of a small town yeah. in a hundred people. That's right. Oh, you got wow. it. Now, in the peak of summer, when blooms are blooming and bees are buzzing and honeys get made and all kinds of great things are happening and the colony is reproducing like crazy, um, you can have 50 to 80 colonies. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, when we're talking about a bee <coughs> colony, we're talking about maybe 50 to maybe how much habitat and how much forage you have, how much, remember in, in this case we're talking about the nouns, so we're going to talk about blooms and pollen and everything. Right. Well, if we already know that in a city we're looking to put a lot of bees in the brooch, yeah. so putting a honeybee hive down in the city and expecting it to flourish. flourish is a little bit crazy. I think once upon a time... That would have been a good idea because we had more habitat. Time, you more got food or not, but now. Now we don't. And so what's happening is some studies out there are showing us agricultural filtration and out competition for those habitats. Right. They are out competing. You know, obviously, yeah. if, you know, let's let's just go with a conservative estimate of twenty thousand colonies. Right. Obviously, you're going to have introduction agricultural swarms and other resources. Right? Yeah. Some of their resources. Yeah. Now they partition resources, which means, you know, they have preferences. 
So unfortunately, we do have another show after us, so I think we're going to have to wrap it up, unfortunately. Okay. So are there any last words you want to add out there, or anything you want to add out to the crowd? I, I would like to. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh, I talk so much. It's alright. I think this is, pro- that's, this is probably the best episode we've had, because I hate usually having to play music during my interviews, oh, so I want to talk okay. forever, so it's probably my best episode so okay. far, so thank you. Okay. Yes, of okay. course. But I do want to just mention a couple things. Alright. Any of our listeners are Fire away. Um, so, one of the things that I like to mention is that, um, well, uh, I'll quickly mention that, that both Kitchener and Waterloo are both new cities. So this yeah. is a movement that's moving across Canada. Um, basically, what it means is that the municipality gets recognized. That really important thing that we have, which I didn't even get to talk about, which is food. You know, the link between pollinators and people. We didn't even get to talk about that. Uh-huh. Ah, they're really important for food. They're really important for um, wildlife, for, for people, for recreational landscapes. Just think about plants that provide us with oxygen, <laughs> plants that provide us with the grocery stores, all that kind of thing. Um, and so as a bee city, uh, one of the things that bee cities do is they recognize the signatures of animals that we have in the Canadian land. And um, we create habitat and we educate people. Typically celebrate um, Pollinator Week in June. Mm-hmm. Third week in June. Yeah, third week in June. So, um, in particular, I just want to bring an event to the attention of the listeners, and that's oh, okay. Tuesday, June 18th at 6:30 p.m. at the Nature Library on Bridge on Queen Street. We will be having um, a little film festival. Uh, we have three little films, and we will be chatting and. And if anybody is um, super interested, I just wanted to let them know that on Wednesday and Thursday, I mean, obviously a lot of our listeners are going to be flying home from sands at this point. But we but all when, deserve a little break. Yeah. But maybe there's some staff listening. I don't know. Um, Wednesday, April 17th, at that same venue at um, Kitchener Public Library, Main Branch, Queen Street, at 7 p.m., I will be performing a talk which is called World of Pollinators, What's Love? Love it. So again, those dates are April 17th, That's your right. talk. April 17th at 7 at KPL, and Tuesday, June 18th at 6.30 at KPL. Beautiful. So go out, watch some good movies, and hear a great talk. And what was that song you wanted to hear? Well, you know what? I think that what the world needs now is love.